Please don't take it. I just begged her. She, she did not take it, but she took it later, and she tried to kill herself and was hospitalized and became permanently psychotic. And um, I saw her um, in 1970, and uh, her mind was gone. She was not, she was, you know, uh, it, it destroyed her. And she said, she said it was the, taking the acid had destroyed her. And um, she's on that list at the end of Scanner. Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from the West Coast to your brain hole. We are ready to sell Bob Archer our cessoscopes for 50 bucks a piece here in San Diego, at least the three of us here. And we're going to talk about the Philip K. Dick masterpiece, A Scanner Darkly. And we have a special guest today, so we're going to start off there. And that is cyberpunk legend. Cyberpunk Patient Zero, according to William Gibson. John Shirley. And John is Bram Stoker award-winning, Horror Guild award-winning legend who, uh, you know, has long been in this field. It was one of the people who threw objects at uh, Harlan Ellison from a tree during Clarion. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, John. All right. Thank you. I actually threw my body at Harlan Ellison from the tree. <laughs> well, I did. I, I dropped on him from a tree. Which is good because I think he needs that sometimes. Um, well, he, yeah, it, it, he was he was a bit uh, dis, uh, dismayed by the whole thing. I, I, <laughs> I, I mostly missed him. So, yeah. So let's talk about the real life drop bear. I like it. <laughs> now, we, we brought you on to this particular episode for very specific reasons, which we'll get into eventually. John, we, um, we're going to talk specifically about some of your later works um, in relation to your relationship to this novel. But let's talk about some of the books that you have out uh, recently, like uh, the awesome uh, The Voice of the Burning House and The Feverish Stars, which is an excellent collection that has an introduction from R.C. Matheson. That is uh, really great. And then you have a novel, Stormland, which was uh, on my top ten list of reads of last year. Can you tell us about your more recent books? Oh, well, there are those books. Uh, uh, The Voice of the Burning House is a a collection of poems, my first collection of poems. And also some of them are lyrics. uh, And some of those lyrics were written for the Blue Oyster Cult and for um, Joe Bouchard, who... um, used to be in the Blue to Cold and now has his own band uh, with Dennis Dunaway of Alice Cooper and Al Bouchard uh, called Blue Coop. And so he, he recorded some of them um, as songs. Uh, you can find one called uh, a She is Legend um, and, and, by Joe Bouchard on, online. He did a little video for it and everything. Um, and then uh, those those are all kind of in the cosmic horror mode uh they're they're sort of like clark ashton smith and feel except somewhat modernized and and they're all in rhyming and and verse form um there there's kind of walk the line between uh uh ballads and and poetry and um there is uh uh, well, of course, Stormland is is basically about a place in the United States that has, in the future, become permanently storm ridden. Is uh, constantly 
afflicted by uh, hurricanes and um, uh, intense lightning storms and one after another, one after another, day after day, year after year. And yet there are a few people still living there. And why? And uh, there are strange things moving in the background. Um, and it's a sort of metaphor about the climate change extremes um, that we're moving into now. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the Feverish Stars, <clears throat> and the title is from a story about uh, Lovecraft. I wrote as a young man, H.P. Lovecraft, as a young man, when he, he literally has fever. He's, he's ill from, uh, uh, and when he's out on the beach, he gets ill. Uh, and, he, and he starts to have visions that we might relate to his um, point of view of cosmic horror. But the, the book is a, just a collection of the stories that have not been collected by me before, all of which have some kind of interconnecting theme, whether they're science fiction or horror or social commentary. Um, so those, those are the three big things that are out right now. Uh, although I, I will just mention quickly, uh, uh, early, uh, early this year sometime, uh, Jack and Apes Press that, that did the poetry collection is, is bringing out uh, a new version of my story collection, really, 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 really weird stories. <laughs> and that, that book is also now uh, available as an ebook. Yeah, and um, Dan at Jack and, and I Apes mentioned it because it's it is a lot of Dickian influence in some of the stories. You know, um, what uh, kind of uh, the undermining of of reality uh, comes up a lot, and then uh, and then uh, shocking revelations about um, the nature of reality and and so on. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. And if people want more details. On Stormland, uh, I did an interview with you that's in our here on this podcast. They can scroll back and 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 get more details where uh, we went really intensely into that book. All right, so uh, let's get into the um, uh, bones of this show. Let's start with uh, PKD News. Of course, he's still not with us, so that's part of the unfortunately. Issue. Yeah, and uh, but we do have two pieces of PKD news, which is the uh, a finalists for the Philip K. Dick Award have been announced. And I'm currently reading one of the nominees, which is Far Light, uh, the Far from the Light of Heaven by uh, Tade Thompson. And that is so far uh, 230 pages in. It's a great um, sci-fi murder. I hear that's the, the front runner right now. Yeah, that that's the rumor, and um, it's really good. It's like it's a sleeper ship where the captain wakes up and thirty yeah. of the people sleeping on the ship have been murdered and partially eaten. And the only other one I want to mention of the nominees is The Escapist by uh, Lavi Tidar, who was a guest on our show talking about his uh, excellent World Fantasy Award-winning novel Osama. Which, of course, I want to recommend people go back and listen to that episode, read that book, Osama. It's incredible. One of the best um, books influenced by Man in the High Castle. So, um, Osama. And that's the last thing I'm going to say about that. You can look. We'll have the nominees in the show notes, so you can so you can look at all those titles. And um, I'm working my way through them, and hopefully we'll read them all. And I only have one other piece of PKD news. And this shouldn't be PKD news, but if you search PKD news, one of the highest things that comes up is that Keanu Reeves in an interview just said, I really liked reading Philip K. Dick. And it became a news item. 
And he, but he also said that he liked listening to GBH and the exploited. So I wanted to mention that as well, too. So um, this, okay, well, um, this book was published in uh, 1977. David, what was, uh, what was going on there in 1977? Well, the first flight of the very first space shuttle happened in 1977. Did it? Uh, we lost Elvis at age 42. Um, and I think these two things are, are well, we, we didn't lose him. We know exactly where he was. He was in the toilet. <laughs> he was on the toilet. <laughs> right. Um, but I think this is but... because we talked about Elvis being the number one hit when world Jones made came out. Right. Yeah. And we, we've done a lot of these like pointing out where the, where the, you know, PKD, this was his 25th year as a novelist. So, just look at how the space program changed from from solar lottery to scatter darkly right oh yeah yeah we hadn't even sputnik hadn't even gone up yet when solar lottery came out and now we've got a space shuttle so um a lot happened in the world so that's funny you can see that progression in in pkd's writing where the the planets become less uh less utopias and more uh you know these deserts worthless places where people are struggling to survive yeah in short like they really would be probably mm-hmm. in most cases <laughs> yeah well and i do know that um pkd told rickman he didn't even know how many planets there were in the solar system i do want to point out just for the fun of it that one of the things i learned from reading rickman's book is that philip k dick's favorite drink is orange crush and he actually specifically said that he drank so many orange crushes that his literary agent at one time told him he needed to cut back. So, folks, I am going to you, drink orange crush in honor. Haven't you never had a soda in your life or something? No, I drank a lot of soda. I just don't drink a lot of them. Oh, the, yes. no caffeine. That's the thing, right? None. none oh, no, I'm caffeine. on caffeine now. So. Oh, are you? Yes. Yeah. Oh, slipping. David's slipping. <laughs> Well, I like tea. I like tea a lot. So, uh, Orange Crush for Phil. Um, but let's talk about... Yeah, that's pure sugar right there. That's yeah. 100% sugar. Yeah, it yeah. should be It should be injected, really. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, now the sad parts. So, um, as always, we have to consult Divorcepedia. Let's, so, what let year? Me, let me what first year get... did he write it? Well, let's first get out of the way the absolute details of that this was written after a suicide attempt and uh like a serious one and a long Mm. bout of not writing he had written flow the first draft of flow but um had not really gotten to it in a long time but the last thing he worked on before this was collecting the book of pkd collection so he did an editing pass on that and the next thing he wrote after this was the ubix screenplay for the french production company Mm. Uh, the planning and writing of this happened mostly February 20th to April 2nd of 1973. However, he outlined the book in 1971, but we'll get to that. Uh, he turned it in to, to Doubleday and Valentine. He had a paper book and hardcover deal for this book before it was finished. A Scanner Darkly? Yes. So he, he wrote uh, the outline in 71, that early. That's interesting. Yes, and the, he, I'm amazed it was outlined. Yeah, the, I never thought he wrote that way. <laughs> well, he did, but he often didn't follow them. 
um, that, wrote right. lots, lots of outlines. If you read that, I have the outline for uh, Death of the Anti-Watcher, which became Ubik. And you can see, like, the first couple chapters, he's following the outline, and then he's like, fuck it. It's like, you know, nowhere near. Uh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and then, um, <laughs> so he somehow got a deal with both the double day he was already working with them and done Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep and done Deus Irie and all that. So he had a deal, and he, he sold, based on the outline, he sold to Doubleday. Oh, and they did Flow, too. But what's really interesting is that he sold the paperback rights to Del, to Ballantyne and Judy Delray at the same time. And actually, Judy Delray had more of a hand in the editing than Doubleday did. So the first edition came out from Doubleday in January 77, and they followed it six weeks later with the Science Fiction Book Club edition. And uh, and then the Valentine paperback came out in December, so all in one year. And then the first UK edition came out that November, so he had a deal to print it in the UK and in Europe then uh, the same year. So he had some pretty good deals going with Scanner Darkly, and I think most of the editors, publishers, like, knew they had something really good going on. So, um, Anthony, the first PKD quote. Working all those years on Flow My Tears, doing all those drafts, changed my work habits. I'd never done more than a rough draft and a final on a novel before, and there was 11 drafts. God, I was reshaping it word by word. Once in, never out. I couldn't go back to doing a rough draft and a final draft just like that. So the next novel was A Scanner Darkly, and it took years to write Scanner. It just took years. The idea came to me in the early part of 1972, and it wasn't until 1976 that I sent the manuscript off to Doubleday. And I wasn't trying to say what was real. I was just no longer able to dash off the stuff at the rate that I had before. Now, he, he did send earlier drafts to agents. So, uh, and then we have the next quote, number two, is from a letter to Nancy and Issa um, that was written in April of uh 73 i believe after sending the novel flow my tears to my agent i started another one scanner darkly a 62 page outline 82 final pages to mail to accompany the outline for submissions 240 pages more in rough add that up for a period from february 20 to april 2nd and how many pages of writing do you get a fatal stoke that's what uh, is that a typo i'm pretty sure that's, it meant stroke a, yeah a fatal yeah. stroke well <laughs> a fatal stoke. there you go john you mentioned stroke right there yeah <laughs> So um, his writing style was different on this. He spent a lot of time working various versions of it. Um, do you guys think, I think you can tell the difference between this novel and some of the earlier ones, how much care he was putting into doing Oh, un undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Absolutely. Yeah. Way more true to life than... Yeah, sure, it was grounded in the real world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, According to my notes, it appears that the first time SMLA, his literary agency, saw a draft, a full draft, was April 1973. Okay, Doubleday had already bought scan, uh, bought Flow, and um, they had sent the 62-page outline. And apparently, Doubleday bought the novel based on the 62, the 62-page outline. So they trusted him enough. From, from the outline. Yeah, see, people, yeah, that was the outline was probably more uh, organized in some ways, but writers um, submit outlines more to just get an advance 
um, <laughs> than, that they can live on uh, than to actually provide uh, any kind of a uh, armature for writing. Now, uh, so, so you're saying that the, they don't necessarily write the they don't write the outline, but they use the outline as a way to write something else. Oh, I'm saying they live, use they use it as they live. use it as a way to get a check. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. I, that's what you know. I, I've I, for years I've had to do it, but I don't stick to the outline. Right. Right. All right, Anthony, uh, number three. But with Scanner, it's all bite, all grit. It's a great tragic anti-dope novel, an autobiographical account set as science fiction of what I saw in the dope world, the counterculture during the two years after my wife and daughter left me. I believe nothing in fiction matches it in the hell it portrays. Yeah, he's oh, like, during this on. phase, he was very <laughs> confident in this novel. You'll yeah. see. Um, we have other quotes where uh, he's pretty high on it. He feels pretty good about it. And uh, well, as well, he should. It's a great novel. But... Yeah. I think he knew. Um, I don't know if anybody has anything else on that. Like we, I mean, yeah, he, everybody knows that this is his anti-dope novel and that he took it that way and then he considered it that. So uh, Anthony, number four. But on the drug thing, what happened was that after my wife Nancy left me in 1970, I was in a state of complete desolation and despair and suicidally depressed because I really loved her. She took my little girl with her, who I also really loved, and I didn't see my little girl for I saw her only once in a whole year, just for a few minutes. I got mixed up with a lot of street people just to have somebody to fill the house. So she left me with a four bedroom, two bathroom house and nobody living in it but me. So I just filled it with street people. And I got mixed up with a lot of people who were into drugs. But that was for a period of just about a year. And I think, <clears throat> and then I just took amphetamines. I've never even taken hard drugs, but I was in a position to see what hard drugs did to people, what drugs did to my friends. So amphetamines are light. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he actually took Darvon at one, uh, you know, at least one time. He's had experience of opiates, but I don't. But he was never into them. Yeah, yeah, just like just like he was with uh, LSD. With he took it a couple of times, but never never enjoyed it. Yeah, I, wrote, I think that's something he. <laughs> I think he really did get that right in this book. As somebody uh, who as. Uh, some people know uh, both my parents were drug dealers and both suffered from addiction. And this whole idea of just filling your house with random people so you don't feel lonely. Oh, yeah. It's such a, it's so true. It yeah. is, that is, there was new people in our house every day. So like, mm -hmm. I, I think he really got that nailed down. I, except in my case, I was the random person in somebody else's house. <laughs> so you were at my house, John. <laughs> I was at your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, and so this next quote is from an April 73 letter to John Slandek, who, you know, we've mentioned on the podcast before, who ended up being the guy who finished um, on Lies, Inc. For, for Phil after his death. Mm, um, okay. it, and so number five is in a letter to John Slandek. And who is, uh, Sladek. Sladek. Slay, yeah. Slasek. Sladek. 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 Oh, of course I pronounced it wrong. I'm terrible with names. So everybody knows that. Uh, number five, the letter to Sladek. Sure. Everything in A Scanner Darkly I actually saw. I mean, I saw even worse things than I put in A Scanner Darkly. I saw people who were reduced to a point where they couldn't complete a sentence. They really couldn't state a sentence. And this was permanent. This was for the rest of their lives. Young people. These are people maybe 18 and 19. And I just saw, you know, it was a vision of hell. And I vowed to write a novel about it sometime. And I was just, it's just, well, I was in love with a girl who was an addict. And I didn't know she was an addict. And it was just pathetic. 
So I wrote a scanner darkly. Yeah. And then the next, uh, I don't know if anybody wants to comment on that one. Well, I just, I, I don't find that realistic. What part? Uh, I've, I've been around people that have done tons and tons of drugs. No one's ever ended up with permanent psychosis that I know. Dead, yes. But permanent wow. psychosis without an underlying condition has never happened, as far as, as, far as my experience. I've seen it happen, but it is not that common. Uh, and and some brain damage can be pretty common. It also depends on the drugs. You know, yeah. there's some pretty serious shit out there, uh, designer drugs now and so on, too. But, but he's really not, I mean, people. he's talking about basic, uh, sort of the basic drugs as far as we're concerned, right? Uh, yeah, he, it's, you know, high, super high levels of amphetamine. Uh, some people can get pretty damaged by them, but nobody took more than Lou Reed. And, and after Lou gave up amphetamines, um, probably it took him like four tries because uh, amphetamines have a very high recidivism, a very high relapse rate. Mm -hmm. He, after he gave them up for good, he, he was completely coherent and together. So, you know, yeah, it's that's the same with my mom. My mom was in, right. you know, she was a crystal addict for a long time and uh, she was totally insane when she was on the drugs. Right. Afterward. Wait out, Bob. She, yeah. The majority of people can recover if they take care of themselves. So, mm -hmm. People should not get discouraged and think, oh, I'm I'm totally screwed. I can never recover. I might I might as well keep taking the drug. No, yeah. you can recover most of the time. Most people will be able to recover. True. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And um, well, and I do think, um, you know, it's hard because we've heard so many exaggerations and we know Tessa has told us 100 times, like Phil exaggerated all mm -hmm. the time. And then he was a chronic exaggerator. So it's 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 hard to. You know, but at the same time, I, I mean, it could be hyperbolic. You know, it, there is yeah, a lot of tragedy when you're in those drug circles. Yeah. But also so, he was a writer and, and yeah. writers dramatize in, in, in their lives sometimes if they if they're not careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're wired, you're not careful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sladek, uh in that uh, April 73 letter, there's there's more uh, number six there, Anthony. And my second sale to Doubleday this month novel, A Scanner Darkly, <clears throat> I've gone into new depths of what is reality that no one ever before imagined could be posed as a question, let alone answered. It is a furiously anti-dope novel, and I spent all of 1971 doing firsthand research for it, although I did not know this at the time. I just thought I was <clears throat> turning on with all my friends. But toward the start of 1972, I woke up one day and noticed that all my friends either were dead had burned out brains, were psychotic, or all of the above. Then I fled to Canada, and later on here to Fullerton, which is close to Disneyland. You won't believe how screwed up reality is actually, John, until you read Scanner. I had no idea myself. Anyhow, writing the novel almost killed me, and reading it almost killed little Tessa, my wife. It's a very sad novel, and very sad things happen to very good people. Right. I think that's a really powerful point. Well, I don't, th I don't think he writes exceptionally good people in this, but... Uh... But I, I understand this point. I mean, I, they don't seem like really good people to begin with. Oh, I don't I know if we get to know them as. I don't know if we get to know them outside of who they are. Yeah, while that, in the info. Well, when you level. finally yeah. find out what Donna is really about, she's actually a good person who's stuck in her role. Yeah, yeah, and she's so. She has so much self hatred about it too. Yes. Know? Now, um, but they, there's a speaking of Lou Reed. There's prior to any of this being written or anything was the uh, the fight between William S. Burroughs and Lou Reed about uh, 
Lou Reed uh, uh, glorifying heroin when Burroughs was constantly saying, you, you don't want to do it. You know, you have to be rich to be an addict. Yeah. Uh, and, and they had this huge fight about this. I mean, that was the biggest, as far as I know, back in that time, that was the biggest battle of drugs was between those two iconic cre- people. Great creative art, great artists. And he, yeah, well, uh, Lou's song Heroin did can sound kind of like it was uh, extolling heroin, but mm-hmm. in fact, it, it was just a sort of short story deep in the point of view of the reason people become heroin addicts and, and, and kind of the state of mind. So he was, yeah, that initial he was, he was a mind. writer. He was like, a, you know, a storyteller. And so that's, that's what it's always like. in his it is things. It's not, it's not an endorsement. And, and if uh, it's very like the kind of, in a way, uh, what the actual, to me, theme of A Scanner Darkly is, the song mm-hmm. Heroin by Lou Reed. It's it's about like uh, people are struggling to to deal with their own personal reality and their life, their life's dilemmas and the world around them are suffering. So they turn to drugs right. and and they're not and th- that mm-hmm. aspect of it is not appreciated enough, as, as Phil says later uh, in the uh, afterward to the book. But I also say, you know, Dick claiming that he's written the the epitome of drug books i mean there's already oh wait out there. there's all com- kinds there's of more there's you know, more coming on of a drug yeah yeah yeah, yeah there is but he takes it to new levels i think yeah well, that's, uh, yeah that's worth discussing for sure we'll get there that's for sure okay so the <laughs> next quote I, it's from an interview uh, i can't quite remember which interview but um he this is where we get into in the early stages of trying to sell this book, Phil like really thought so highly of this book. He he felt kind of insulted that Doubleday offered him the same amount for this that they did for Flow My Tears and Deus Irie because he thought he had something. And so he almost pulled it from Doubleday at one point and was <laughs> like, and but anyways, we'll get into, so here's the quote, number seven. He talks about it here. Strap in, it's long. I'm about to do my Aaron Sorkin monologue. <laughs> <clears throat> it started to bother me finally when I wrote my anti-dope book, Scanner Darkly, and I realized I'd written a really great novel. Actually, I'd finally written a true masterpiece. After 25 years of writing, and my agent wrote back when he read the first part, and he said, you're absolutely right. This is exceptional material. And then he went out and sold it to Doubleday for the same old goddamn 2000 <clears throat> By that time, they were up to 2500 Still Mickey Mouse money. Here's this masterpiece, and we're going to pay you 2500 for it. And I fired my agent. I prepared to buy the manuscript back from Doubleday, and I could never raise the money to buy it back from them. I couldn't get enough cash to buy it back. And Simon & Schuster offered to buy it from Doubleday for 4000 So I'd get a little more money. Larry Ashmead having then gone to Simon & Schuster. But Doubleday refused to relinquish it. They said 3000 was their limit for science fiction, and then they admitted 4000 was their limit. And then they turned around with the scanner darkly and turned it over to their trade department, sell it as a trade book. And there is no limit in the advance to a trade book. So they weren't limited to 3000 and they've got a masterpiece and they put out almost no money at all. So the next book, then I sold to Bantam for 12,000 and Doubleday was just out of luck. Doubleday said on the phone very bitterly, you're mercenary. And I said, no, I have to eat. I have yeah. to <laughs> it's about being a writer. <laughs> yeah. That's what we have here. I owe the IRS $4,700. I can't afford to sell you a novel for $3,000. And of yeah. course, I especially 
couldn't if I could sell it to Bantam for 12000 I never really got angry until this book, A Scanner Darkly. I knew the book was worth a great deal of money. I knew that it really was a fine book, and I worked five years on it, and I knew that I was being gypped. It was the first time in 22 or 23 years that I really realized I was being terribly gypped. Just gang-banged is what it was. Okay, so the, we get a little gang-banging, but... That's what I'm going to say every time I'm getting screwed over now. You guys are really gang-banging me here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, he, he this was the uh, a uh, science fiction writer who'd been one for decades, 25 years anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, wanting to break out of the ghetto of science fiction. And he and that's why he was writing a lot of uh, attempts at mainstream novels. Um, and but he, he couldn't quite ever break out of the ghetto. And the and the pay that he was getting for Doubleday was the the ghetto pay <laughs> yeah. for science fiction. Well, yeah. this this novel certainly does rise above that that ghetto level. I think it so has, too. It's so realistic in a lot of its portrayals that I mean, it should have been taken more seriously. It should have been published publishers. for the mainstream. It should not have been published as a science fiction novel. I mean, yeah. it should have been it should have been published like uh, uh, the Handmaid's Tale. Right, right, something like that. Yeah, like a, yeah. I think he has a point here. There's sometimes where fantastic, I think... but it's not out. It's not so far out of reality. No, right. Yeah, yeah, and um, we'll get in. So here, there's some some. Uh, comments with when judy del rey gets involved in the editing so number eight anthony they're going to make a bundle on it but valentine deserves to make a bundle on it because judy lynn del rey at valentine went over the manuscript page by page with me and told me what it needed in order to be a truly competent book this is the first time that any editor has ever done that with me since the man in the high castle hmm so well also i I know tessa had a lot to do with the writing of this one as well she was there with him every every day and uh doing notes and she even says she wrote a couple of sections in there. I don't know what specifically, but there was a lot, he got a lot of help. It appears on this, on this novel. Yeah. Uh, now there's another quote here from uh, number nine, Anthony, let's, let's what, and then we'll talk about the Judy Del Rey thing. <clears throat> Judy Lynn Del Rey is probably the greatest editor since Maxwell Perkins. She showed me how to create a character. I've been selling novels for 22 years and she showed me how to develop a character. My first reaction was, dear Judy Lynn, how would you like to take a one-way walk off the Long Beach Pier? But then I started thinking about what she was saying, and soon as my fuse had burned out, being very short, it didn't take long, I realized that she was teaching me how to write. It's too bad that nobody did that 25 years ago, because then maybe my books would have had made more sense. But A Scanner Darkly, a master craftsman came into that book, Judy Lynn Del Rey. Now I know what to do when I write a book. You don't just write whatever comes into your head while you're sitting there. (laughs) There's a concept. (laughs) You say you got to think about it. Yeah, there's a process. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, a process. Well, yeah. (laughs) I wish I'd had her as an editor myself. (laughs) No doubt. So this idea that she taught him how to write characters is very interesting to me. Well, yeah, and we've talked about it for 30 books that his, you know, his characters are often flat and stuff like that. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the female characters don't have any agency and uh, all those things we've said for so many books. Yeah, and the main is a bumbling sad sack that's really annoying mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we know that one of the ways that Judy Del Rey kind of influenced 
the book too was um, that she tried much like Don Wolheim to say like, Hey, this book, she, one of the letters she said, Hey, this book takes place in 1994 in the far off future of 1994. And you have all these people talking like sixties drugsters. She's like, I want you to invent new lingo and dialogue so it can be more futuristic. And they actually had a whole discussion apparently on the phone where he said, no, I want it to feel like the 60s, even though it's set in 1994. For Phil, like, this is a clear indication that to him, this was this alternate weird 60s, 90s. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, David, you've been you've been driving this point home. I mean, ad infinitum, really, I have for, for the past like 10, 15 novels is that. He has, he wants it not to be the future, uh, our reality, our future. This is an alternate reality that he's writing about. Yeah. And, it, and once I, I got that in my head, this book made more sense. Yeah. I mean, it's already, it had already made sense, but it just there's, there's felt only... better knowing that it's just an alternate it's reality. It's an alternate reality that comments on our, rea- on exactly. our, on our yeah. reality. And in that way, it's far more clever than just being sort of a set in the future kind of thing. And it's clear that the only two things that are different about this reality in in, in real ways are, well, three things. The scramble suit, Substance D, and the scanners inside the apartment, really. And there's like 1,100 Planet of the Apes movies. (laughs) Yes, there's a bunch of Planet of the Apes movies, and they're playing at the drive-in. Yes. And so we have one last quote that may be a little over the top about how Phil felt about this novel. (laughs) I felt I had written a novel equal to All Quiet on the Western Front. I felt that what All Quiet on the Western Front was to war, that anybody that read it would never pick up a rifle as long as they lived, that anybody who ever read A Scanner Darkly would never drop dope as long as they lived. And in it, I had all my friends who are now dead or crazy from dope sitting around laughing and talking. You know, then they all go crazy and die. It broke my heart to read it. It broke my heart to do the galleys. I did the galleys two weeks ago, and I cried for two days after I did the galleys. Every time I read it, I cry. That makes sense. Yeah. We, we know this is... Yeah, because it's the... his story. Yeah. yeah. It's his it life is. in a lot yeah. of ways. And of course, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to mean a lot more to him than it, than it is yeah. to a casual reader. I and mean, we, but... we we know that Phil has done this before. He had Ray Nelson do the um, proofs for Three Stigmata because he couldn't bring himself to, to read Three Stigmata yeah. for, the, for the proofs. And, um, you know, we so and they were roommates at the time, so it's pretty easy to just be like, hey, Ray, can you, can you do this? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there's times where he just doesn't want to go back to him. So, no, it's, a, it's a reliving a bunch of bad times. I mean, that's it makes perfect sense. All right. I think we're done with the writing and publication history of this. Larry. Yeah. It's your turn, dude. To do story. what? It's the story oh. breakdown. Got it. <sighs> All right. You ready to start your book report? I think so. <laughs> All right. I'm muting while you do it. It's the story breakdown. All right. You ready to start your book report? I think so. (laughs) 
All right, so here we go with my book report on A Scanner Darkly, which is a book by Philip K. Dick. And it's good. There, there's my review. So just so you know, for the future, that's my review. It's good. Uh, what, what we have here is a cop story. So in the beginning, we meet, we meet Donna and we meet, was it Fabin? Yeah, we meet Fabin Jerry Faven. We meet Jerry Faven first, and he talks about aphids, and then we meet uh, Charles Frack, who helps with the aphids, and then meets Donna, and they talk about Arctur, who is our main character there. Bob Arctur, a.k.a. Fred, a.k.a. Bruce. Uh, so the story is that Fred is a police officer, undercover, trying to bust big-time drug dealers, preferably the ones transporting drugs into our country, specifically this this stuff called death, slow death. This, it has a couple of names. Uh, it's a it's a big-time drug. So you can shoot it, you can, you can pop it. Well, what's the... What's the uh, the Jim Carroll? If you're if you're you're gonna snort it, you might as well pop it. If you're gonna pop it, you might as well shoot it. The uh, it's a big time drug, and being undercover in this world means that Fred has to take the drug. So <clears throat> we can already see that Fred has started to turn against his cop ways when he has to do a meeting with a Lions Club. And he hates all the people in the room. Anyway, so we find out that Fred, in his in his uh, suit, his what what is the suit called? The space suit? The scramble suit. Scramble suit. No one can see who who Fred is, and that's sort of a metaphor for Fred because he can't see really who he is. Uh, but he turns out to be this Bob Arctor character who is, seems like a normal guy, just takes an occasional drug every once in a while, lives in a house with a couple of weirdo drug addicts, uh, people. There's Jim Barris and Ernie Luckman. Ernie Luckman likes to drink a lot. He's sort of a big guy. Barris is a very, very odd, conniving, weasel-type person who is not to be trusted. And uh, Bob also is in love with this girl, Donna, who looks exactly like Winona Ryder for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but he's, he's, uh, he starts to struggle with whether being a cop is worthwhile or whether he should be a drug addict. And his bosses notice this and make him take some tests to see if he's cogn cognitively sound. And it doesn't go so well, that first test. And his boss, who is Hank, who we don't know who Hank is, also wearing a scramble suit. Hank is telling him that he needs to follow this dude, Bob Arctur. He tells Fred he needs to follow Bob Arctur, who, you know, Fred is Bob Arctur. But here's when we get into it, is when Fred decides that he needs to watch Bob Arctur and sort of has this disconnect between who he is on the drug side and who he is on the cop side. And the further he gets into it, the further we see that it's the drug causing him to have this separation. 
And while Fred has great ideas, he, he says, I'm going to go to my dealer, Donna, and I'm going to buy a thousand tabs. And a thousand tabs should be too much for her to sell to me. But she does sell it to him for reasons that we'll find out down the line. Uh, but it could have been it could have been more, it could have been less. Uh, the number doesn't matter. But what we find out is that he doesn't take that stuff like he should down to the uh, the police locker, you know, stick it in evidence. He sticks it under his mattress. And where does that drug end up? I think we know where it ends up. It ends up inside of Bob Arthur. <laughs> and <clears throat> so he's drifting further away from himself. And this is the key to the to the novel is that he's becoming two separate people. His brain, the hemispheres of his brain, and some sort of wackadoodle bio, biological science turns him into a a dual personality through taking this drug. And Fred the cop comes to hate Bob Arthur the drug addict and totally disassociates. And when he has to take these these cognitive tests a second time, they, they straight up tell him, hey, you're two people. You're, you're seeing from this side of things, you're seeing from the reality side of things, and from the back of reality side of things. So Fred decides, oh, you know what? I don't think they're telling me the truth. I think I know what's going on. And I think I know what I need to do. And so he... he he feels like he's got to bear down on Barris and figure out what that guy's all about. And he knows Arctur is sort of the center of attention, but doesn't understand why, because really, he doesn't do anything. Arctur is sort of so plain and ordinary, as far as drug addicts are concerned. He's confused why he's the center of attention, but he knows that he hates that guy. But he realizes that Barris is a psychotic and that something has to be done about this guy. And before he can do anything, Barris comes into the police station with evidence against Bob Arthur, claiming that he is part of a international terrorist ring uh, bent on destroying the United States as we know it, along with his his uh, cohort, his partner, Donna Hawthorne. And so we find out that's obviously none of that is true. But the point of Bob Arthur being being the the center of attention was actually to find out whether Barris was an insane lunatic uh, bent on the destruction of the United States or not, and he is. So that's that's basically the story. Is that uh, you know even though Fred loses his mind, Bob Arthur becomes uh, nothing. Fred becomes nothing. He, he gets his man in the end, even though he was tricked into it. That's that's sort of the end of the novel. Donna takes him to drug rehab, and he's totally out of it. And uh, the end, the end. Then there's a coda, a 35-page coda, uh, that is basically a short story about a different character altogether, who has loose ties to, to Bob Arthur and Fred. And um, it's about... The, the the drug death and how Donna's plan as an agent of the government is to find out where it comes from and Bob being destroyed becomes part of that plan 
and he ends up finding the drug in the end. It's grown in the U.S. Bum, bum, bum. And then the, the book ends with the assumption that they're going to take down the, the drug company. Wow, and I didn't think it was then, separate. I, I, or I didn't really and then there's an afterword. I didn't feel that way about the co- coda. But anyways. I, that's my opinion. But that's that's what you get when you when you when you do the breakdown. You get my opinion. <laughs> that's right. But that's um, that's pretty much the end. But that's um, that's pretty much the end. All right. Um, now we're going to talk about the afterword next. Is there anything you wanted to say, Larry, before John reads it to us? I'm probably going to disagree with everything everybody says. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'll just read this author's note, or at least much of it. Uh, author's note at, uh, written by Philip K. Dick at the end of a scanner darkly. This has been a novel about some people who were punished entirely too much for what they did. They wanted to have a good time, but they were like children playing in the street. They could see one after another of them being killed, run over, maimed, destroyed, but they continued to play anyhow. We really all were very happy for a while, sitting around, not toiling, just but just bullshitting and playing. But it was for such a terrible brief time. And then the punishment was beyond belief. Even when we could see it, we could not believe it. For example, while I was writing this, I learned that the person on whom the character Jerry Fabin is based killed himself. My friend, on whom I paced the character, Ernie Luckman, died before I began the novel. For a while, I myself was one of these children playing in the street. I was like the rest of them, trying to play instead of being grown up, and and I was punished. I am on the list below, which is a list of those to whom this novel is dedicated and what became of each. Drug misuse is not a disease. It is a decision, like the decision to step out in front of a moving car. You would call that not a decision, but an error in judgment. When a bunch of people begin to do it, it is a social error, a lifestyle. In this particular lifestyle, the motto is, be happy now because tomorrow you are dying. But the dying begins almost at once, and the happiness is a memory. It is then only a speeding up, an intensifying of the ordinary human existence. It is not different from your lifestyle, it is only faster. It all takes place in days or weeks or months instead of years. Take the cash and let the credit go, as Villone said in 1460. But that is a mistake if the cash is a penny and the credit a whole lifetime. There is no moral in this novel. It is not bourgeois. It does not say they were wrong to play when they should have toiled. It just tells what the consequences were. In Greek drama, they were beginning as a society to discover science, which means casual, causal law. Here in this novel, there is nemesis, not fate, because any one of us could have chosen to stop playing in the street. But as I narrate from the deepest part of my life and heart, a dreadful nemesis for those who kept on playing. I myself am not a character in this novel. I am the novel. So although... Uh, was our entire nation at this time. The novel is about more people than I knew personally. 
some we all read about in the newspapers. It was this sitting around with our buddies and bullshitting while making tape recordings, the bad decision of the decade, the 60s, both in and out of the establishment, and nature cracked down on us. We were forced to stop by things dreadful. If there was any sin, it was that these people wanted to keep on having a good time forever and were punished for that. But as I say, I feel that if so, the punishment was far too great. And I prefer to think of it only in a Greek or a morally neutral way, as mere science, as deterministic, impartial cause and effect. I love them all. Here is the list to whom I dedicate my love. And then there's a pretty extensive list of people who uh, were badly affected by drugs in his life. Uh, in memoriam, he says, there were comrades whom I had. These were comrades whom I had, but there are no better. They remain in my mind and the enemy will never be forgiven. The enemy was their mistake in playing. Let them all play again in some other way and let them be happy. That's his, his uh, after word coda to the novel. I, I, I think that should have been a foreword personally, but. Well, um, I can kind of understand. He'd rather let the novel speak for itself, but he wanted to make a few things clear at the end. And he, you know, uh, to me, it's a lot of people who struggle with recovery have to find their own way of, of expressing things. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I uh, have some notes, and one of them relates to the fact that I had some issues with rereading this book mm -hmm. uh, again because the only other time I read it was when it came out in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I tried a few psychedelics then, but no hard drugs. Um, in the 80s, I got into and out of hard drugs, experimenting with meth and cocaine and a few times heroin, shooting cocaine and heroin and so on. Uh, then I got away from it and was clean and sober for some years. And uh, but then I had a relapse uh, that was and it was worse than my previous drug use. Um, I relapsed in the 90s and I got caught up in some, just some horrible drug scenes. I just saw terrible things out there. I mean, you know, crack house stuff. Yeah. Um, with really bad effects on my life and, and on my career. I got clean again. I had a few more brief relapses. Um, and then I was done. I've been done ever since uh, with with hard drugs. And I it's been decades. But what I saw out there and what I experienced left me with actual PTSD. Uh, and uh, his description of hard drugs and the peculiar states they slag you into is so evocative Um I was all, all, almost having flashbacks. Mm. It, it's all very real. And, and Phil Dick said in an interview that everything in the novel, in, uh, in terms of drug behavior, he actually saw in person uh, when he was in that scene. And I could see the, the novel's character Barris in myself to an extent, not that bad, but something <laughs> like that. Well, I and, hope not. <laughs> and Freck and people I knew. And... Uh, the maze, one of the things that's great in, in the book um, is the maze-like interlocking of the minds of people on cocaine and speed and other drugs, um, substance D. Dick evokes that in an unsettling way. Yeah. And, and it really, it takes me frighteningly to being back in those mazes. Uh, to the the reinforcing the reinforcing of delusion that is engaged in by people 
high on amphetamines and cocaine. They kind of work together unconsciously to reinforce each other's delusions. Uh, and I wrote my novel, Wet Bones, as a supernatural horror novel about addiction uh, while I was in recovery from a relapse many years ago. And that, that book is very into the dark vision of the phenomenon, a sort of flip side of from Dick, Dick's version is a science fictional. Mine is more supernatural or spiritual. Uh, so it was hard for me to get through rereading it, but it's a brilliant book. And, um, and a lot of, and I'm struck by certain things. Um, Freck and his bugs paranoia really sets the scene at the beginning yeah. and, and a bad scene, man. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a condition yeah. called, it's a, it's a real condition called delusional parasitosis. And it's reminiscent of so-called Morgellons disease. Uh, and the, the Morgellons, you can look it up on Wikipedia. It, it's, it, that delusion has been cropping up in recent years in our time. People think they've got some kind of parasite that's scratching their skin bloody. And, and then what happens is bits of ordinary uh, clothing thread, just little tiny pieces of clothing thread, a thread that's in a, that inside the, our houses all the time. We just don't notice it. It becomes uh, part of dust bunnies or something. Right, they, they're fall so they're th these things kind of make a little snow on us in real life, and they fall into the the holes that people scratch in themselves, and the people fixate on those, and they see these little threads, and they say, um, "I do have I do have a weird parasite. Look, it's this thread." And every time anybody analyzes the thread, it's always cotton or something. Uh, and I believe that in most cases, the people afflicted with this decision have uh, been abusing high levels of amphetamines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is another connection to a scanner darkly drug delusions. Well, and John, it should be said that one of the reasons why I wanted you on this episode is because you wrote Wet Bones. And, you know, Wet Bones, uh, yeah, uh, Wet Bones is, it's kind of your scanner darkly. It's I want to say something about the scramble suits. Um, this, and it's one of his wonderful ideas uh, that he just tosses in. You know, uh, people have been mining these little ideas that he throws in his novels for years and years and borrowing them, like the movie Bugs, for example, by William Friedkin. I, I'm convinced it was borrowed from A Scanner Darkly. It's just taking sections of it uh, and then putting them Let's, in. Uh, yeah, it was done there. Else's oh, condition. Yeah. But it was not about drugs. It was just about states of mind but, uh, and paranoia. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, people are always borrowing things from him. And Dick's science fiction scramble suit uh, worn by narcs, uh, it, it projects this constant churn of random images of men and women, right? So one personhood blurs into another, Im imagistically speaking, uh, the images drawn from millions of people. And to me, that's a double metaphor. The suit is a is a metaphor for the fact that uh, a drug agent, a narc, according to Phil Dick, is not any definite human being. It's not that he's subhuman or anything, but he's not a definite human being. They've given up their individual humanity uh, to represent some kind of negative, highly judgmental social consensus. And uh, so the scramble suits are, are a blur of personhood. You can project anything on them, but they also represent the angry presence of straight society looking down at the drug user. Because <clears throat> all those straight, well, all those people, all society is, appears on it. Flick, 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 another face, another face, another they're face. They're an infiltrator. They're, they're not themselves, but they're not necessarily 
anything less than a person. Right. So well, they're, they're not. No, uh, but but uh, it symbolizes that, I think. And there's a third metaphor in scramble suit. They represent the shell we all put on, the various versions of cells we project outward to protect ourselves. Uh, we all have a secret self hidden away under this protective illusion that, represented by the scramble suit. Yeah, I mean, when Fred Archer was, was lecturing, as you mentioned, uh, he goes there in, in a scramble suit and he has a sort of meltdown and, he's, and he says, this is what gets people on these drugs, this disgustingness. And he was talking about the, the meeting itself and, yeah. and, and the talk and everything and everything he was doing. and The way society views things. And, the, and, and, and yes, and also just the, you know, the, the kind of condition that society sets up that is uh, uh, inimical to um, uh, uh, people feeling safe. Because we we're always going and we're always being caught off guard and, and, and forced into new shapes by this, the, the, the march of, of commerce, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and by uh, expectations as, as, and by religions and, and uh, social institutions. Uh, and, and we have to, and we, so, you know, this feeling of desperation comes and fear and people start taking drugs. But this, yeah, that's what, what ties back into the author's note is that, He's saying these people just want to have a good time, you know, and society views that as criminal. Yes. Wanting to have a good time is criminal. And everything in this novel is its opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, nar narcs are drug addicts. Uh, drug addicts are narking. Mm -hmm. uh, Arctur is a spy spying on himself. Uh, rehab in the for form of new path. Uh, is actually a source of substance D. Yeah. So the rehab place is a source of the drug that people are trying to get rehab from. Um, and uh, substance D is hidden in, in these harmless crops, you know, uh, yeah. at the New Path Farms. Uh, and also the opposites of the right brain struggles with the left brain. That is a big theme. That yeah, that big dichotomy book, between the two. The dichotomy uh, of the right and left brain. The left brain struggles to intervene in the right brain. So, John, uh, uh, Anthony pointed this out to me earlier, is that uh, in the author's note, he said drug misuse is not a disease. It is a decision. Uh, and then he goes on to uh, basically uh, create an oxymoron by saying it's not their fault at the same time as it is their fault for making that that decision. Well, it's complex. I mean, so, he's he's saying you can make a decision. So is that is that but, does that fit into the rest of the theme of the dichotomous? Uh, yes, theme? yes. I mean, it is. Yeah, it it is. It is. Uh, uh, yeah, because it is a decision, and it's not a decision at the same time. It's a, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, you a lot of people really. It, it's like seemed like their only alternative. You know, there are children on on little children, really pretty small, on the streets of uh, uh, Panama City, for example, and and in uh, uh, Rio de Janeiro and the slums. And there, and there's a whole syndrome of these little tiny children being addicted to glue sniffing, and and um, they're these they're very impoverished, and they're and people around them get shot a lot, and they're terrified and they're ignorant, and this is the only thing that takes them out of themselves, even if it makes them sick at the same time. At least it's yeah. someplace else, and that's kind of what's going on uh, with substance D. Uh, well, yeah, he also, he also mentions babies in, in the book where he says that there's 
you know, a, a parents, a bad parents feeding their children drugs. Yeah. And it almost, it almost reflects what happened during the crack ep- epidemic when children were born. At- right. Right. And exposed to, and sometimes uh, exposed to crack smoke, which had a bad effect on them and, and uh, just generally impacted by it. Absolutely. I could tell you horror stories, but I won't, I don't want to rethink, I don't want to rethink some of the things I saw. I don't want to revisit that, but I, but uh, uh, yeah. And, and now people are, um, are often uh, wrongly prescribing uh, drugs against um, uh, ADHD is that is that if I got it right? Uh, yeah, that's definitely one of them. That's uh, you know they they basically prescribe amphetamines for ADHD, but and 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 you know there's a, uh, there's most a lot of, the of that. time most of the time it's not something that the kid really needs. It's just the, the kid has a personality that confuses them. Well, that's what kids do, and the kid is having some trouble getting getting uh, traction. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes there is a form of medication that really does help some of the more extreme cases, but they're oftentimes giving it when they don't need to. And they're, and, and they're doing things like they're, they're letting their teenage daughters use Botox. <laughs> really? This is, this is a, this is a syndrome. That doesn't, now. Make sense. that doesn't make any sense at all, but they're like, Oh, but I do have, I started to have a wrinkle mama and yeah. And they, and it's like, I just don't like this little, this perfectly natural line that they've always had, like here, perhaps uh, under their eyes. So they Botox it. I mean, that's sick, you know, and, and so these things go on where we're kind of bombarding people with uh, options that that, right. uh, that, they don't. that that are actually a, a trap of some kind. Well, Anthony, you grew up in the 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 central time of Ritalin being prescribed to you must have had friends that were constantly on Ritalin and. And all those ADHD, you know, techniques that they were using in that during the the late '90s and stuff like that. Did, did that did that affect the way you viewed your peers or anything like that? Did that? Nah, not really. Um, I grew up, like I said, with my parents, so drugs were always just there. Yeah. So, 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 so to me, <laughs> yeah, other people being on a different type of drug kind of not the you know almost the norm reassuring. Almost reassuring. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, I briefly had, I had one experience um, where I was given, I forget what the Pro, Prozac uh, to treat depression and I got really dizzy and vomited. So I kind of don't, I, I have no experience beyond that with those. Yeah. I have friends that were on Ritalin, but I also kind of wonder how many times a day they actually took what they're supposed to take. And if they weren't just selling them to each other, Sometimes you know, that happens. Sometimes that happens. You too, know. Yes. All right. Well, I mean, you would get kids that were fucking spazzes, uh, you know, so I, my guess was they weren't taking it and they were selling it. Or they how were else taking, all these kids have so much. Or they were money. taking four when they should have taken one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's another thing so, that could happen with Ritalin. But you know, <laughs> Ritalin can be useful for some people. They really do need it. Some people, uh, Ritalin can be useful. But uh, I, uh, Botox even can be useful, like when people are given certain injections in their throats to get to deal with certain throat problems that you can have with Botox. Uh, with uh, that that is treated with Botox, uh, that can be useful. Uh, but but we're but we're we're misusing all these things. Yeah. 
most of the time. When when uh, when Arthur buys a thousand tabs and doesn't put it into you know into the the uh, the locker the you know the the evidence locker, he, instead he ends up taking all thousand tabs of that. Uh, right. We, <laughs> yeah. He's clearly, he's he's gone. He's lost his. It's a moral ideation, whatever. Yeah, because it is. in the beginning, he's basically saying, like, I'm not really doing this. I'm just buying the things. And that's the moment. Yeah, he's where... talking about taking, maybe I'll take two and it'll be okay for the next couple of days. And yeah, and that, that's where he starts. But then we find out a thousand tabs have just disappeared. Okay. And, he, and he won't even say the number he takes during the day. So I want to go through some of the themes that I have um, outlined for the way I... I organized quotes from the book. Um, I have them organized under uh, dope scene characters, substance D slash new path, surreal 60s slash 90s, moments of horror, Fred and Bob, and then moments of humor, which there was There's less a lot. of than normal. There was less for me, but there are very funny moments. But um, I, well, I, I mean, this isn't exactly your kind of, you're kind of jam, though, yeah. right? Like, you're not, yeah. so you don't have an insider view on this one. That's... <laughs> right. Let's go through the dope scene characters. Um, one of the first scenes that really worked for me was on page 40. And uh, this is when um, they're kind of talking. To, this is when Barra starts talking about going to 7-Eleven to get the materials to make. Oh, them. right. <laughs> <laughs> to make, this, this scene was very funny. You get the solar cane? Is that what he's talking about, or is this after that? Um, he's like, I got a temporary lab set up at the house. I can create a better one. And they're talking the, the, the cocaine. They're talking about an ounce cocaine. of cocaine out of solar cane. Yes. <laughs> and uh, like this whole scene where they go to the 7-Eleven and stuff like that. These are great examples of uh, where he was talking about using real life experiences from his drug days. Where and I know for a fact in one of the letters. Uh, he mentions in a letter to Tim Powers that the bike scene was real. And it's interesting that that ended up in the movie too, but that's hilarious. To yeah. me, that's one of the funniest scenes And the bike scene in his letter to Tim Powers. He said that, that, that whole bike conversation when somebody, somebody had stolen a bike, brought it over to his house and they were all arguing about how many gears it had. And that's when he thought, like, this is a sign that I'm losing my mind is that I can't even <laughs> conceptualize this. So, to me, that's... Well, yeah, you put that in the book perfectly. It yes. makes perfect sense. There's seven gears. Right. <laughs> By the way, I uh, uh, knew people uh, in, uh, who would uh, get a, uh, a cold from uh, the local convenience store and... Um, they would break open this inhaler for the cold. It was like basically a, a nasal inhalant to clear your sinuses. They would break it open and uh, and then eat the this gunk inside it, and they would get really high because it had um, amphetamines in it. And they stopped making it that way when this got out. Uh, but this went on for quite a while. People were, why is everybody buying five or six of those cold medications? <laughs> So he was on to something. It's like whippets, it's like any of those. And whippets, whippets, right? Yeah. I had a you, few whippet experiences. Video head cleaner because it would get you high for it was like a whippet. But that was a thing going around too. It was really yeah. yes, and also also the the misuse of 
uh, embalming fluid. Yeah. Somehow there was some way you could oh get God. high from embalming yep. fluid and people broke into, into mortuaries and got and stole it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. so, um, the desperation to get high and escape <laughs> and escape from the misery of life. Yeah. So, well, if you're that miserable, you'll find anything to get to exactly. get out of it, right? Yes, like we yes. used to, we Hopping. used to just steal the Robitussin and the Nyquil and then just right. drink that slowly throughout the evening and then just go right. wander around the beach. It's you know. Yeah. yeah. That's a good combination though. The Robitussin DM. You throw some Jolly Ranchers in there, Larry. You're set. <laughs> Well, and I have to say that um, San Diego gets a cameo in this book. Um, a couple of them. Yeah. Um, the zoo Bob, and the uh, and the city itself. Yeah, Bob Arthur comes here for the fifty dollars ceph- cephalopods. Uh, uh, and I, you know, it's funny uh, because that I guess that whole Southern California. This is the first time he was writing in Southern California, so it's the first time he really used it. Although he has mentioned, I know we've pointed out that he's mentioned San Diego before, sure. and I know he married. I think Anne, they got married in Baja, California, right past yep. DJ. So he had spent time down here before that. Um, but as far as the dope scene character, I'm interested, Anthony. Um, this is your first time reading Scanner Darkly, right? I know you've seen the movie, but um, what did you think of this depiction of this compared to? drug characters you knew like coming through your house at a different, in a different era, you know? Like, well, I think one of the biggest differences is I never heard any of my parents' friends say, you're jiving me right now. But, uh, <laughs> right. I, I think for me, it was pretty accurate. The, the longer we've been talking, the more I've been thinking about my mom's ex-boyfriend who just really had a lot of disassembled bikes and bike parts in our garage uh, oh, he yeah. created a oh, whole yeah. workbench, had bikes hanging from the rafters. And it's funny because they're only never. Yeah, exactly. Never actually made a bike. There's a shitload of bike chains, um, you know, and they're always it's always kids bikes, too. I don't know if you guys have ever been around. You see an adult driving around a what is essentially a kid's bike. You're like, I know how you got that bike. Yeah. And at one point uh, I went in the garage and found just a huge sack of doorknobs. Did you just a sack of doorknobs sitting in the garage, you know, and a bunch of other stuff like random RC cars and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think Dick uses language to keep the reader a little bit from feeling how visceral some of those experiences can be. Like he's, you know, he says he soiled himself a lot, whereas, you know, I, I, I very much remember how just this is going to sound harsh, but disgusting, how disgusting my mom became the further she got into her heroin addiction. Right. Um, but I, I think I think personally, I I think Dick did a good job representing it from an outsider's perspective. Right. I don't know how John or Larry feel, but. Well, I, I, one yeah, thing he was by he had some he had some uh, space. Uh, by that time, by the time he finished the books, he had he had some distance. Yeah, but I I would say one thing that I I kind of got offended by uh, in the book was um, going through recovery myself and being in a, a recovery home for a year. The the depiction of the ex drug addict employees at the recovery homes being assholes was mm. not my experience not my experience in any way every ex addict every ex addict i've ever met has been supportive 
right, right, right. Ever been like, dude? You're- you know why that? You know it was like that in Dick because he went to Synanon, and so he, went a to, different he, he went to that place Synanon where he, there was supposedly a rehab, and later uh, a bunch of those guys were indicted for serious crimes. Oh, really? Uh, and oh, yeah, re, you know, look up Synanon and. And you'll find out that they were just appalling. They became a cult and they were brutal and they brutalized people. And they and uh, they were uh, just they were flaky. Their ideas were flaky and and they were they were awful. So uh, that Synanon Synanon was the basis of New Path in the novel. Mm -hmm. And then also the addiction center in Canada was called XKLA. XKLA. And it, it was controversial there at the time too it was, right, a, it was sort of the yeah that same sort of yeah and where we're in the interview that i have that the 79 interview he talks about how they ratted people out and made you the villain and all that all that kind of stuff right that's a totally centered on they did that they yeah. were trying to get to be confrontation was going to help you know uh yeah the one in okay, Canada, well, that committed suicide clearly by the 90s they they abandoned that kind of bullshit it was synonym was in fact in the 90s uh, disbanded yeah and some of those people were imprisoned good and uh apparently it was a phil called a suicide line and then ended up at the one in, in canada it was after calling mm. uh, a suicide line they referred him to this place uh, in canada so uh yeah it's one thing i meant to ask you david you said that he had a serious suicide attempt what was, yeah, his, right after what Nancy, was his method and what, what made it serious? Well, serious is that uh, he, well, when I say serious is that I believe like he, no, he was no, very, no. he intended very seriously to complete the act. It wasn't a call for help. Uh, I can't so, remember. So was it like the, uh, like in the book, was it like the take a bunch of reds and die? And, oh, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and there was some reason like, it, yeah, that might have been a parody of making okay. fun of his own thing. Yeah, of what happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. He's talked about it that there was some like weird fluke for why it didn't work. Hmm. And uh, and you know, when he talks about it, he talks about it as an I tried very hard to die at that point. And uh, so he was serious about it. So yeah. I don't know, unless you guys have anything else on the dope scene characters, I'm gonna move I, on. I, to I do. I have a... Uh, I have a couple of quotes uh, that, that made me take this book seriously. And they're, they're sort of right at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, there's a certain, I, I think everyone has, that's been in the drug scene at any time has their certain triggers that they, they know someone's telling the truth when they say certain things. Right. So he says, uh, I, I'm in the, uh, the, the like four novel thing, so I'm not going to give you page numbers. Uh, now and then a dealer, realizing he was about to be busted, took refuge in one of the drug rehabilit- rehabilitation places. And uh, when I was in a recovery home, I had three drug dealers that never did drugs, but were, were in recovery, so they didn't go to prison. And, and to me, that was, that was ultimately realistic. And then he has a, he has a second quote here. Yeah, well, that's interesting because... Uh... Yeah, that's a detail I wouldn't have caught. And, and here's the other one uh, is a, one of the characters. I can't remember who says, but shit, I'm down so low now that it it's like a matter of days. And also, I think I'm being ripped off. 
I can't be taking them that fast. Somebody must be pilfering from my fucking stash. That is, I've heard that so many times. I've, I've even felt that before when I've, you know, been on drugs. Like, how did it, how did we go through this so fast? Like an eight ball you do <laughs> and you're like, what? How did we? What the hell? Yeah, time. Yes, time dilation. <laughs> Subjective time dilation. I yeah. think Carrie and has that novel has You want to forget? You, you know, you want to forget that you did the drug so you can complain about how you needed more. You know, it's just a weird psychosis that you. Yes. Have. Yeah. Yeah. And we have we we see that in this in this novel and and uh, and just the whole subjective state of mind that like the world of of being. Uh, in that kind of condition, uh, he, yeah. he really evokes that, that, that the, you know, there's, there's, and that's kind of like the right brain and the, le and the left brain, the left brain is objective, the right, right. brain is, is subjective, can there's be very, no can be can. very creative, but, but also it's subjective, you can create your own world del uh, of delusion in there. Yep, I, I, those are the kinds of things that, in this book, made me, like, see that this is realistic, this is, this is real uh, sure. drug addiction to me. This is the things people do. Hey, it's not me this time with barking dogs. <laughs> it's my newly adopted dog. It hasn't learned how to be on podcasts yet. Well, uh, welcome, Patchy. Uh, uh, but all right. So, um, Anthony, uh, do you have anything else on the drug uh, scene characters? Or I'm going to go on to substance D. No, I think we've pretty much covered that. Okay, so um, the first thing that I noticed with Substance D is is uh, five pages in, and I love this scene where uh, where uh, he's driving past the thrifty drugstore and they have a huge window display, bottles of slow death, cans of slow death, jars and bathtubs and vats and bowls of slow death, millions of caps and tabs and hits of slow death, He's having this fantasy that that he could go to Thrifty and get them, right? <laughs> and it's it's not real, but he's having this like, you know, um, image. And then it says, and there's a sign that says, "Your credit is good here." Not to mention low, low prices, lowest in town. <laughs> um, and uh, then on the next page, it's he wondered when and how they unloaded a 50-pound bag of substance D. So he actually starts like thinking about like. Like yeah, he goes, he goes from full, fantasy, full fantasy mode on that. Exactly. And then um, on the next page, it says, survive in this fascist police state, he thought, you got to always be able to come up with the name, your name at all times. And so, like, <laughs> this whole scene was great. I loved it. That, that to me is hilarious. You, yeah. know, you really have to know your own name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that's so, a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I loved this scene. This set the stage for me. This was like yeah. one of the um, underrated great moments of the novel, starting from from early on. That just really won me over. So I thought that was great. And you know, uh, the first two chapters are great. Knowing your name, though, you know, Arctur is also uh, Fred. Fred, yeah. you know, and uh, he's 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 got more than one name. He's more than one person. Doesn't know really know who he is. Yeah, no, but he it's, ends up being Bruce at the end. He doesn't yeah. even really know that name either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's foreshadowing, and it's a great setup for eventual uh, payoff. Which we know a lot of times when 
because Phil like writes from the seat of his pants a lot of times. He doesn't know where he's going with things. Makes me wonder if that's a second draft. Um, well, it's, it's yeah. It seems. I like mean, it, I would think so. Yeah, it seems like it would be second draft. Um, something that he added, or I guess he said he did eleven drafts. So. It could have been eighth draft for all we know. No, he did. Uh, I thought he did 11 drafts of uh, Flow. Uh, my flow, team. flow, yeah, yeah. But he said he did several drafts of Scanner. So, uh, and then on page 31 is the first time that Substance D is labeled as <clears throat> that it wasn't synthetic, uh, that it or mm-hmm. that it was synthetic, that it was not organic. And I oh. thought that was really key kind of part that you know. Yeah, that's it's a good one. twist at the end. Right, because it is organic. Eventually, we learned that they're growing it there. And um, so I thought that was kind of a key, kind of important part. Uh, page 38 is the first time that they really talk about New Path. And I love that Charles Freck says, well, the first thing the first thing they do when you go to New Path, Charles Freck said, is they cut off your pecker as an object lesson, and then they fan out in all directions from there. So they start by... <laughs> So, that was it Barris that said that? I thought that was Barris that said that. Freck. Freck okay. says it. Yeah, of course. The, the, even in the story, that isn't true. That's Freck's weird little fantasy. Yeah. And um, I also like on that page, he says, a person grows more spleens over the years. Oh, that's, that's Barris. No, no, it's Freck. No, it's Barris. Yeah, it's Barris. Oh, Barris says that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Barris spleen. saying all the, the weird stuff about the recovery. Yeah. And then uh, hey, freaking freak out. <laughs> right, right. And then there's there's some really great stuff around there. That's um, oh, that's right before the scene where where they go to Seven Eleven to make to, to make cocaine from. Yeah, that's when they're in the diner talking to Patty or not Patty. Yeah. Um, uh, the next thing I have is on page one fifteen, which is a scene about the split brain. And many of those taking substance D, a split between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain occurs. And that's when, um, you know, Fred is basically, he's having a conversation with his boss. And then the guy's trying to explain to him the, the split in the brains. And he says, I really like that um, Fred says, like, he basically asks him, like, if you noticed anything, if you noticed anything in me, right? And I thought that was a key moment because just that question of him saying, have you noticed anything? It's like starting to show like the the signs of his paranoia kind of growing. Oh yeah, and he's not aware that he's not aware of it himself is definitely a sign that something's wrong. Yeah, and the split brain thing comes back up again in two eighteen and nineteen. That's how far it's almost a hundred pages between when it's introduced and when it gets like real serious. Yeah, when he takes the first test and then the second test, right? Right. So there's a hundred pages in between, which is which I think is interesting. And then you have the two hemispheres of my brain. Fred says the two hemispheres of my brain are competing. Yes. Why? Well, substance D, substance D, it often causes that functionally. And then this is like the whole scene where he's like had the test and he's like having the discussion. Yeah. And with and, the text. Yeah. And really the thing that I wanted to highlight is that there's a hundred pages between when this is introduced and well, so, we see that we see the fall we see his exactly. descent into this dichotomous nature you know where he's he's becoming more and more pissed off at this bob arctor character right and, and separating more and more as he watches him on the uh 
on the scanner and and he's like this guy's a total fucking creepazoid yeah he gets very third person about bob arctor yeah yeah that that was fascinating to me to me that was the kind of the best part yes and i love that on 219 there's just uh, just a line where he says i will never drop substance d again for the rest of my life right it's like that's the moment where he's like saying like fuck this shit right and it's that yeah but he's also full of shit of course he's full any (laughs) any addict that says they're never gonna do a drug again right full of shit well, you, you you know you can eventually get to where you can be pretty confident in it, but if you just if you yeah, right yeah. at the beginning when you're just saying okay I'm stopping now yeah, this is it yeah that's pretty <laughs> full of shit you know it's not so easy. Well, that's why I mean that's why why AA and A and all that use one day at a time. And, one day at a time, yeah, yeah that's right, know, that's right. It's supposed and to be just as long as a place you called Smart today, Recovery, and they use it too. And you don't look you don't look too far down the line. Because if you look too far down the line, you're going to see yourself doing drugs. And then or the last thing, or whatever it is. And then it's uh, 246 and 47 is when he arrives at New Path. The thing about the New Path entry, the, the thing that really hit me on that scene was, um, you know, the staff person, the first thing the staff person says to Donna is, what is it? Not who is it? It's what is it? And then she yeah. says a person. And then the, the new path person says substance D. She nods. And then she says it ate his head. Another loser. Okay. This, this. Yeah. But see, that, that's it. I mean, to me, and I'm probably not going to be popular with this opinion, but uh, to me, that's a, a separate short story. To me, the, the novel ends oh, God, and she drops him off because she goes her own way. We know he's going to get the recovery he needs. That's the end of the novel. Well, the the revelation about where substance D is coming from and yeah. uh, the closed yeah. circuit sort of situation with, you know, uh, new yeah. new path causing the the uh, addiction that then, that then it is curing you of. You know, uh, I'm going to agree. That, with that you. is a pretty important. That is a pretty important. Let's say climactic <laughs> revelation. It should have been integrated into the novel and not I just thrown at the end. Where, of the novel. I don't see what you're saying at all, Larry. But in my opinion, because you think everything should be separate. No, I think this totally fits with the novel. I mean, he's no, old. it doesn't. It's oh a my drug God. book, and then it's a story of a different character receiving recovery and finding out that there's a. a a source of the drug. Well, no, Bruce is just the like mind fucked version of Bob Archer that doesn't even. No, but he has no personality. He is nothing. Well, that's he's part of the slate. It's part of the. So he's not Bob Archer. He's just a nothing. Well, Bob Archer doesn't exist anymore, and that's that's what they're saying is that. His that's his, kind of his sad arc. That's what makes it so tragic to me. Thank you. Is Thank that you. he really does but become? He already nothing. has that arc prior to that. Mm. All right. All right, so one thing I want to say is that uh, the New Path residence is in Santa Ana. Um, and I like that on the next page, they say, uh, later on, I think we'll transfer you to the island or one of the farms. Uh, first, you have to go through the dish pan, dish pans. And that, that's when they mentioned, like, the animals and, and the whole thing. And, and, um, and, and there is a line here, John. Um, this isn't synonym. They uh, they don't let you smoke. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, they, they do mention Synanon a couple of times in there. I thought it was uh, fictional, but yeah, I thought it was nope. fictional too. I didn't know it was real until until John mentioned it. So, uh, so the next. No, uh, but I do I do want to point out that we have kind of overlooked some some of the more unfortunate aspects of of the fact when they send Arctur to New Path or the he's basically let go from his position because he's an addict, right? <laughs> yeah. And, it's sort of and a catch twenty two, isn't it? Well there you have to do drugs, but you're also you did it on your own, so So it's your fault, which then punished. leads to um when he's sitting down talking to um I believe it's Hank and Hank says, no, read your penal code. An officer who willingly becomes an addict and does not promptly report it is subject to misdemeanor charge. Yep. A fine of $3,000 and or six months. You'll probably just be fined. What? It's very you guys calm. sent me to this job knowing this might happen, but then you didn't tell me it was my job to then tell you that I got addicted to the very thing that you told me I was investigating that I had to report right. on myself. Hey, remember, ignorance is such, the law is no excuse. That is such governmental bureaucratic bullshit that it's, I feel it's absolutely 100% accurate. Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> ties in, it ties into what I, I do love about the new path stuff at the very end in that final chapter that I know didn't work for Larry, but it all seems to represent how cyclical and tied in everything is. Arctur is addicted to a substance that's being produced by this place that is creating the substance to get them addicted, to generate their business, which is then being, I feel like the the, the government or the police department knows about this and it all just feels so horribly cyclical and depressing. No, and let, I, I haven't- Let me, let me read clear that they know about it, but it may be an upper, they keep, he, he hints at some point that at the upper levels, uh, who knows what they know. But, and, right. and, and uh, so, you know, uh, Donna apparently is a, is a, is a federal agent, yeah, but, yeah, totally I, different, but from apparently a different agency than the, than the others. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So um, it's unclear to me what she knows about that, but. He's like a NSA or something along those lines, something. Yeah. Like a, there's a big, there's a, there's a sort of fog, fog of war um, mm -hmm. that, that uh, is, you know, covering the whole book. But I do want to reiterate that I don't have a problem with the storyline itself that, that they tell at the end. It's the separation from the main body of the novel that bothers me. It's not integrated. Yeah, it would, be, would have been hard to do, probably. He well, did his I'm best. I'm okay with hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I what, think I'm, what I'm getting at, though, is it all feels so very hopeless. Uh, when I when I finished this, I, I haven't felt this um, depressed finishing a book since I finished 1984. But it's a good, it's a good hopeless, right? It's yeah. like a, a reaffirming kind of, uh, we're all, we're all in the same boat kind of hopelessness. As far that as that has I, never made me feel good ever. <laughs> I know like, what you mean. I know what you mean. It's like uh, saying the ship's sinking, but we're all on it together, right? Yeah. But we're still going to fucking drown. The end of 1984. He, and he loved big brother. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, to me, I, Animal Farm is. The, I went for uh, a walk and had a cigarette after I read that book. <laughs> well, right. right, but you know, there is a little, there is a sense, I think, at the end of the book that he, that uh, Arctur is going to find his way out, away from New Path, and recover, and even expose them. I think there's a hint of that. The, yeah, I'll have to look. I'll have to look up the exact pages to find it at some point. But I well, he he recognizes the plants. 
Sure. And, they, and, there's a, and he has a plan to and, and he puts it in his hints that he's going to uh, tell people about it. And he wants, you know, and he, and he really does want to get clean and stay mm -hmm. clean. All right. So the next section is going to be surreal 60s slash 90s. So and I love this line on page 29 where he describes Anaheim. I think this is really, you know, every once in a while we get Phil commenting on life in a cool way. And I love this uh, life in Anaheim, California was commercial for itself, endlessly replayed. Nothing changed. It just spread out farther and farther in the form of neon ooze. I love that. Well, yeah, I. I mean, you probably didn't go to Anaheim in the 70s, but I, I was I was there quite a bit going to Disneyland when I was a kid. And uh, man, that place was ugly. <laughs> it was just nothing but neon and, and shitty motels. And it, it was a it's not not the greatest city on the planet. Let's put it. No, it is. It is. It is uh, it's a city based on uh, exploiting addiction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the ways that, that, that one of the ways that we have this surreal 60s feel is just like some of the dialogue. Uh, page 136. Uh, she probably says the dude owes her bread. <laughs> right. And um, but I love there's the scene where they're trying to steal stamps and there's the whole like thing with stamp machine, the stamp machine. That's on the next page, 137. And that's another sign that. Like, he was just like, I don't care if this looks like the future or not. I just don't care. And well, I don't think he was trying to make it look like the future. Yeah, and we can tell that we know Only that Judy Del Rey tried. he needed for the story. Oh, right. Yeah, this stamp machine thing also was just about the state, again, the, the ag state of mind. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to take this. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to put all these stamps in a, <laughs> in a, in a shopping basket and sell it. And it's going to be great. And. Uh, and it's and also uh, there's perhaps some kind of symbolism having to do with the stamps emitting from the federal government. Uh, and she's an agent working for the federal government. What's yeah, up with that? Exactly. <laughs> now, now, I, I may be overthinking page 204. OK, but considering my theory on the whole like PKD is just a surrealist more than a science fiction writer and that he's just creating these alternate worlds and he's very specifically wants them to be alternate worlds instead of the future. I don't know what's going on on this page, but on 204, Arctur said, I wonder whose face is on the hysterical $5 bill. Well, that was our most hysterical president, Bill Falks. He was the, he only thought he was the president. And when did he think he served? He imagined he served two terms around 1882 later on after a lot of therapy he came to imagine he only served one term this whole thing just confused the shit out of me when i read it i was like what <laughs> is he trying to say here with this other non-lincoln guy and this hysterical five dollar bill i have no idea what it means i was absolutely confused oh that was hilarious the hysterical who's on the hysterical five dollar bill Right. It was funny. But I, I just, like, yeah, that is that is probably something that uh, is supposed to be uh, make you wonder what, <laughs> what it's about. It's and like it, a, a it real might even be a private body. joke. Right. Right. Lincoln is not, was never hysterical. <laughs> so 
anyways, so that's all I have on the the weird surreal '60s versus like, and that whole hysterical five dollars I mean, old thing. There's a I lot more than that. I mean, they talk about having a lid. Sure. Uh, it so might be lid, just a few lids of pot do. and stuff like that. It it, pro- it might be actually, you know, he really is referring to Lincoln, but they they have imagined this other guy. <laughs> and, the, and it's all a fantasy and they're just in their minds they see it that way yeah I, there, I know there's a lot more of this surreal 60s thing it's just those are the scenes that really stuck out to me but um i actually really like this time out of joint feeling just because i think that's one of the most phil dickian things is that it is not in the future that it is just in this phil dick reality and that's yeah. one of the the things that I think a lot of the adaptations are missing. Well, yeah, Man in the High Castle, right? Right. Exactly. And 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 so I I think he I don't know if he invented the kind of alternate future and it's our future and it's not thing our world it's not. I'm not sure if he did. Maybe he did, but it sure has been borrowed a lot. All right. So the next section that I have is moments of horror in this book, and there's a lot of those, starting with page one. Yeah, right. <laughs> with the with the bugs and the introduction, and you know, clearly this is an evocative scene, and this is is one of and and I think I don't know how you guys feel, but I think this is one of his best opening scenes, like yeah. of his whole career, because I can't. Well, you know, every time. Uh, we start a new book. I think of Anthony every time I read the first two pages. Right. Excuse me? What? Because well, your, your hatred of all those early books with the boring. Okay. Things. Hate is a strong word. Well, yeah, you, you used it. <laughs> but time out of joint is a little hard to get into. Okay. <laughs> it starts uh, at a yeah, fucking grocery store. He's sacking that, potatoes. From that, I've I've always I always pay attention to the opening chapter, or mm. the opening couple of pages, and say, "Is I'm Anthony just a firm believer." Boring. So, yeah, the bug scene is obviously really horrific. It's something that he obviously his roommate that inspired Jerry Fabian. Delusional parasitosis. Yeah. So we already talked about that a little bit, um, but uh, it's early in the. It's, it's, it's early in the book, but to me, one of the most horrifying scenes is uh, of the Mariner edition is 179. And this is where um, this is where he can't quite make out who's Connie and who's Donna. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and to me, that's one of the most because that's a great indication that he's, that he's losing. He's losing his mind. Right. Know what's real. Well, the the best part about that is he sees it on the tape or on the scanner, right? Yeah. But he doesn't recognize himself as Arctur seeing it at the same time. Yeah. And he he's potentially seeing the same delusion as as himself. He sees it as another. He says, in fact, he says, if Arctur saw it, it has to be real because we both saw it instead of I'm. I'm Arctur, and I saw it at that time. He he claims that it's two different people seeing the same thing. Right, and I've actually had people refer to the bug scene as being funny to me, and I was like, "Wow." It was funny to me, but yeah, I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, that that cross that's yes a, and no. It's dark humor, and it, and it's on the line, and and a lot of the things in here, like to me, the funniest scene in the book is the suicide. It's Freck's suicide. 
Well, to me, the funniest scene is the multi-eyed alien reading yeah, the. Uh, that's good. <laughs> reading um, all the all the sins. <laughs> right. That is that is good too. Um, that takes us to the sixth grade when you discovered masturbation. Right. Um, and the other really horrifying scene to me is 280 and 81, which is the scene where where Bruce is being told what to do and he's just kind of repeating everything back. And that's a really horrifying scene where he's just like, he's lost all semblance of, of who he is. Of individuality, yeah. Individuality. He's no longer Arctur. He's now Bruce. He now just agrees to everything. He's almost infantilism. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a really great scene of just, you know, he's, he's absolutely officially lost his mind. So, uh, and then the next section I have is Fred Bob. And... I think the first really good scene for that one is page 46. Uh, I have been for some time conjecturing as to who Bob Archer is really employed by, which we mentioned earlier. I mentioned the scene earlier, but I thought that was great. That's the really the first two with Bob. Page 58 and 59 is where he's given the assignment. And that's the scene where he's like, what about Arctur? Where Hank's like, what about Arctur? Um, in that whole scene where... What about him? Yeah, what about him? And, and then Fred says, Arthur's not doing much. This whole scene is great. Um, and then, you know... This oh, yeah, whole yeah, it was pivotal for me. I, I was like, oh, there's the story right there. Yeah. You know, that, beforehand, it was just... It was it was good, but it was all character. It was all environment. And then when you throw in, you, you now have to watch yourself and report on yourself. There's the story. And very slyly on page 61 is... The first suggestion of, of bugging the house, Fred says, does this mean you'll be bugging his house? And that's the introduction of the holographic system and the mm. scanners per the title and all that. Uh, page 109 is the first time he uh, reports on himself. <laughs> uh, and I love Fred says, I report myself all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, and he talks about erasing things, the bulk er erasing device, and then not knowing what's erased and what isn't. Um, and then Hank basically says to him in that whole scene, like, you're either, I know you're either Jim Burris, Ernie Luckman, Charles Freck, or Donna Hawthorne. I know you're one of them. You right. Know? And then... But really, he, he knew the whole time who he was. Yeah, he knew who he was at that point. And then started, and then the line got blurred. Got no, blurred. Hank. Hank oh, knew. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he didn't know that Hank knew. Right. So, um, page 162. I, I also like that we never find out who Hank is. Yeah, yeah. We I mean, it could just be, you know, uh, somebody we never met, obviously. But I, I, I kind of want to want it to be someone that we met at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um. On page 162 is where uh, Donna uh, says the whole thing about, hey, what about going to Oregon and leaving this all behind? Which was, which was a key scene. And then... Um, well, that, that whole scene is heartbreaking. Yeah, because she says something about, have you ever seen real snow? And she's like, I mean real snow. Not no, the part where he's like, I'll go with you. I'll go to Oregon with you. And she just straight up says, no. Yeah, yeah. And then like everything he's been trying to build this relationship between them so he can, 
you know, he wants her to be his girlfriend. He actually has honest feelings about this person. Probably the only person he has honest feelings about yeah. in, in his entire life. And she shuts him down every time. Right. Although she as an agent, she doesn't want to have to give well, up sex. We we find that out later, yeah. but at that time we're we're just Yeah, at first yeah, I all all along until then I thought that you know that she was just really drugged up and neurotic and couldn't bear to be touched, but no, yeah. that was yeah, a, it turns out there's an actual reason for it. Yeah. Yeah, and this is really pretty good writing here on page one sixty four. And that's a, also the tragic part. It's almost Shakespearean in that sense that you know, she had feelings for him, he had feelings for her. But that that could never be because before that could become a thing where they find out they're both agents, he loses his identity and therefore they can't be together ever. It has that sort of Shakespearean feel to it. Yeah, and the whole uh, the scene, the uh, actual touch of her, he says 164, the actual touch of her lingered inside his heart, what remained in all the years of his life, the long years without her. With never seeing her, hearing from her, knowing anything about her, if she was alive, happy, or dead, uh, what touch stayed locked within him, sealed in himself, and never went away. That one touch of her hand it was pretty good writing um, mm-hmm. there. And then the tragic uh, 190 is uh, I know Bob Archer. He's a good person. He's up. He's up to nothing. At least nothing unsavory. In fact. Uh, he works for the Orange County Sheriff's Office covertly, which is probably. And then he has this is um, this is him thinking to himself while Burris is in the office, right? Burris <laughs> is like performing on him. And then there's like German for Paris. Paris, no yeah. And then there's German for no reason. I have no idea what it means. Uh, yeah. Does anybody know? Uh, do we know what the, any of that German is? Nope. Because um, I just pass over. Translate some of it. Yeah, he does. Um, he does. But very little, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it's like Tolkien's songs. I just pass over that in German. I thought it might have been Goethe, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I can't yeah. do it. Somebody can't. recently told me that they were trans that they had translated it and or something, but I can't remember who somebody in the, the community. But uh, anywho, uh, yeah. And then 198 is when he like. Uh, knows he's being watched uh, and I like he's becoming more and more strange I can see now what that uh, see now what nope. that informant who phoned in about him meant that's when he's like wow that's when Fred's Fred's watching him uh, with the book oh. right with the sex <clears throat> book yeah and, and uh, <laughs> then there's another scene uh, that Barris comes back in and there's another informing scene on 13 when they arrest him yeah, and then that's, that's 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 a great scene. I mean that I'm I'm big time into revenge stories, and uh, that to me is like a, a a mini revenge story right there that Barris finally gets what he deserves. Yeah, and then 229 is where he starts like like hey maybe I should rip the scanners out. Uh, the surveillance he thought essentially should be maintained. He's trying to decide, like, am I going to give myself up if I start pulling out scanners? But right, piece by piece. Right, and then two thirty-seven. He's a trapped. He's a trapped animal at that point. Yeah. He knows that he's fucked, and, then, and there's no way out. So he just starts scheming with the the most impossible plans he can he can come up with. Yeah, 
And 237 is the page where he just loses it. He's talking to Donna. Uh, or he he's trying to get Donna's phone number. Uh, he's talking to Hank. And then he says, and Hank says, I pieced it together a long time ago. You're Arctur. And then he says, I'm who? Uh, staring at Hank in the scramble suit facing him. I'm Bob Arctur. He could not believe it. It made no sense to him. It did not fit anything he had done or thought. It was grotesque. And then he's trying to get Donna's number. So he, he like, Does, doesn't even know who he is, but he knows Donna's who he wants to reach out to, which is interesting. Yeah, he, well, he's trying to give Hank Donna's phone number, but he can't remember it. Okay. Uh, and, and also, doesn't he call Arctur like a scumbag or something in, in that scene? He calls him like something, something along those lines where he's just like, no, there's no way I can be that scumbag. Right. And that's, uh, let's see. Yeah. Um, what about the, the big quote at the near the beginning? If I had known it was harmless, I would have killed it myself. I mean, that's right. a famous quote from this book. That's a, to me, that as a quote, that's, that's great. I would put that on a wall. <laughs> All right. So. Yeah, that embodies something. It embodies some kind of deeply cynical attitude. Yeah, I, that, I, that, is, I that is institutionalized. Yeah, I, I couldn't even define it as as why it was important but i know he focuses on it as as sort of a joke that they pass around to each other and inside joke but it is profound it is it it has a profundity that i can't i i can't describe yeah it's it is satirizing the attitude of the uh the the worst of of uh power brokers and and powerful people in society their at you know their attitude is is uh crush them even if you don't need to right. you know right. uh, even if they're hard so, yes i mean that is an implicit attitude and uh wouldn't it surprise me if it were a saying amongst them yeah you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't extend that to full all-out human nature well, not everybody's, no, I, there, uh, otherwise I would have killed myself a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, it's fair to say that a lot of us would, if that was, uh, but it's no, uh, there, you know, people, there are some people who are more aware and conscious than other people and, and, uh, and innately, um, em- empathetic, uh, I, yeah, but, but, and they, and they are, they are, they are hope. They're, they are hope. They are light in the darkness. But uh, unfortunately, uh, powerful people, very powerful people, not all of them. There are some good, powerful people in, the, in history. But, but often powerful people tend to be super cynical and, um, and will do anything to, to make sure that uh, they remain in power. I think that the fact that it was said uh, uh, innocently by, by a character... You know, she didn't. She didn't have any intention for it to be profound. Right. It was just her, her nature that 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 made that you know come true. She was a rich girl that was sort of playing in this other world, and uh, and was she, that Donna? Was that Donna? No, it was so, uh, another girl, a neighbor. Connie. Oh, it was Connie. Oh, Connie. Okay. Um. No, so, it wasn't. So we've done. Connie's the the one in bed, right? She's like a whore or something. Yeah, that's it's not Connie. It's a neighbor girl that's only in that one scene. Okay, well, uh, John, you're you're specific. You were always on my radar because you have one of these novels with wet bones, and just from your perspective, like 
how did you relate to reading this novel this time? Because you said you read it the first time in the 70s. Well, I, I feel, uh, like I said earlier, a, a kind of intense connection to it. Um, and my novel, Wet Bones, uh, it was like central conceit of it is um, there is, there is a, in real life a Hindu myth uh, about a, a, an astral parasite that uh, feeds on uh, people who are addicted. And uh, it's like as big as a, a boa constrictor almost. Um, kind of wraps around you and it's you can't see it but it's but it's it's there it's transparent can't see it and it's it's feeding off um, all this kind of spiritual energy that you lose when you succumb to addiction um, and it and then it eats that um, and um, that was my metaphor and and uh, for him it's substance d uh, but I, I just felt like something was was uh, eating away at me in my life when I was addicted, and I and it was something that was basically out of my control, and it was and there was and this feeling that it was encouraging me um, to it was it was actually just a little section of my brain that was being wrongly used because that's what happens with drugs, uh, but it was encouraging me to succumb to this thing f for its own benefit, its subpersonality or something. And, and some wiring in my brain, and uh, the Akishva represented that. And uh, it, it, to me, it was terrifyingly real. Uh, but there was also a spiritual um, way of battling it, a spiritual response to it that is also brought into wet bones. I'm much more um, open about that than, than PKD is in his science fictional novel about it. And, and, uh, you know, I believe that the that the way out of of uh, things like addiction, uh, besides just hanging on a day at a time and building up enough time so that you know your your brain chemistry and wiring has a chance to heal, that's 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 the first thing you have to do. But staying clean uh, is about um, building up consciousness. And Dick also had a you know uh, this kind of yearning in him for uh, a transcendent state. Uh, with relation to the universe, and it come and it comes out in the uh, in the Archer uh, Timothy Archer yeah yeah uh, books uh, story and um, that's coming up soon and uh, and away. so you know and there was and I think that that it was not all entirely hallucinatory some of it was um, some of it was perhaps a result of a, a stroke but. It was so uh, profoundly worked up in him that, that it, it seemed to me in line with some of the visions of the great mystics of the ages. Uh, and there was something uh, real there that he was in touch with. And, and it was being interpreted in these in these stories. And, and sometimes the stories he told himself about it, the, mm. uh, because that's that's what we have to work with. We have our own inner mythology um, and, and our own filters uh, and and whatever symbols that we were raised with, and so we interpret it that way. Um, but it's something much much more um, ineffable. Uh, it's the Atman they call it in Hindu, and it is beyond being described. So we fall back on these other kinds of descriptions, like he did. But that, but he 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 was onto something. How however, um, and and he was even way back when he was a drug addict, he had some moments where he, he saw, uh, you know, the veil dropped and he knew there was something more. 
And he and he alludes to it at, at least one place in the book, and I wish I'd marked it. I don't have it. What's, a, what's in, the idea? In a scanner, darkly. He alludes to the sense of, of uh, another world where something is meaningful um, and powerful, and he, like a little door opens and he glimpses it. Oh, that's the... Uh... Uh, a character Donna is talking about who saw who saw God spoke to God mm-hmm. and, and God offered a door to him that was there for a week or it was closed for most of the time but then it opened for a couple of days but right. he never stepped through it because he never went through it and it's it's he like was so a, amazed at the beauty of it right and see it's like C.S. Lewis's uh, book The Great Divorce um, where people are offered a chance to leave hell. And there's a bus there waiting for them to take them out of hell. It's a, it's a bus ride from hell to heaven. And they just and the and the the, the spirits in the bus say, "Come on, do you want to go?" And they and they make excuses. Oh no, I've got business to attend to. I I really I have to meet a guy in the the third circle of misery, and I just don't have time to. <laughs> and and, and uh, but a few of them do. A few of them find get on the bus and and. And they go there and they go through this painful transfiguration. And then something like that, this guy didn't go through the door. And Dick eventually uh, accepted the necessity of, of leaving hell and finding that painful transfiguration and going through it. I think he made it most of the way, enough to, so that he, he, had, he, he, he changed his life in a lot of ways. I think we're all at some point or another offered that bus to heaven in, in, in some kind of, you know, metaphorical way, but uh, there aren't a lot of people that take that bus. Right. Lou Lou Reed has songs about that in the latter part of his life. Um, He has a song he refers to uh, going through the fire to the light. And Mm -hmm. it's all about it. It's all about um, recovery. All right. And I do want to say I'm going to hold up wet bones for those on YouTube. Um, yeah, we're, we're both <laughs> uh, wet bones. I feel like I should read that. <laughs> you should. I've been saying forever. Wet bones is my is what I consider to be the greatest. It's my number one horror novel of all time. Um, I think it's a masterpiece. I think uh, John, there's a a raw anger and energy to it that um, is kind of one of a kind. Um, that sounds like recovery. Yeah, um, and I think it comes out of what you're going through. But uh, uh, anyways, so I, I think now. We so there's a there's one other thing. If anybody okay. has anything to say about this, the the title itself, which ties into the title of David's favorite. You mean cosmic puppets? Cosmic puppets. Uh, the glass of darkness. Just talking about it, yeah. Inner darkly, it, they're both uh, offshoots of a quote from the Bible from Corinthians. Uh, yeah, it's page twenty three in Scanner Darkly. Says, yeah, does I, the Bible verse have any power for anyone here or is it that does for me i'm not uh i'm an esoteric spirituality person but sure uh but uh there there are gems in the bible and it does have meaning for me especially for you know it must for philip k dick if he put it basically into through different... a lens darkly is what they say uh, the exact uh, quote is i understand he thought what that passage in the bible means through a glass darkly but my precept through a glass darkly through my precept system is as fucked up as ever. Like they say, I understand I am helpless to help myself. So um, that's page 223 of the Mariner edition. Yeah, it's all, it, it, I mean, it's not exactly what the, the, the Bible passage is, but it's, both of those quotes are 
from from PKD or from that same passage. Yeah. So, all right. So we got to get into our final thoughts. And uh, 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 Larry, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah, I don't mind. Um, I'm, I'm. First of all, I'm going to give it its grade, which is I'm giving it four and a half hash pipes. The reason it doesn't get five is because you know I, I honestly feel like the 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 last section should have been uh, scattered throughout the novel. It, it would have tied in better for me if it had been a complete story instead of a separate story at the end. That's it. I mean, that's the only thing. Uh, if it had ended with him going into the rehab, I would call it one of the best drug books of all time. And even at this point, it's one of the best drug books of all time. And there's a lot of good drug books out there, you know, and I've read a lot of them because it's an, it's an interesting subject to me and it's something I've been around my whole life. So it's familiar. It's familiar to me. And uh, the characters were so much better in this than his characters have been in the past. I mean, he's obviously had some great characters. But these people were so much more rounded and and human uh, that it, it, I mean, it's it's a stark difference, really, between this and and flow my tears and even the books written around the same time. It was just I so much want to give this five, but I, I just can't. Just do it. Just give I it can't. five, Larry. Four and a half. <laughs> All uh, right, John. Did you have something you wanted to, to add there? Well, I think it's one of his greatest works and I, I think it should have been uh, marketed uh, to the mainstream uh, and I think that uh, uh, it's more than just a, a, dr- a book about uh, drug abuse although that's an important aspect of it drug abuse is the lens uh, through uh, through a glass darkly it's the <laughs> it's the lens that uh, of uh, stinging social commentary uh, and uh, speculation about how far government surveillance could go, uh, uh, which and you know recently uh, it was dis- this is true uh, not in some from some crank site or something uh, with the uh, IRS is is uh, planning to use um, uh, facial recognition systems. Um, They've already started. They started. They're planning to use them as a requirement that you have to like send photos of your face and to be entered into a facial recognition program in order to pay your taxes. Hmm. Uh, And I'm not, you know, I'm not as paranoid about these things as as a lot of people are. But it just shows that that uh, Dick knew that that um, while there there are good things about government, you know, I'm not an anti-government person, but he knew that that it can also be the tentacled monster, and must and 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 some of those tentacles might need to be lopped off, uh, and that is that is a, an important uh, subtext here too. So um, that's all I have to say for it. Except I would give it four and a half stars also. Yeah, you know, I I think the uh, I think it's as I get older the. The surveillance state means less and less to me because I am no longer doing anything that I need. To <laughs> That's right. That's a, that is a fact. I, I've had the same thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I'm going to, no surprise, give it uh, 
five out of five hundred dollar refrigerated jars of white crosses. Uh, I think I think it is as close to perfect as Dick has written really since um, Three Stigmata or Man in the High Castle. Uh, Scanner Darkly is is and I think it's his best character work, and I guess we have Judy Del Rey to thank for that. So, uh, Anthony. So, I know Larry's just burning to hear what I have to say. Um, I'm I'm gonna give this uh, four and a half kinky freak mother bastards out of five. <laughs> I think it has entered the realm of one of my top favorite Dick novels, alongside the the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch and Clans of the Alphane Moon. Both of which are, as everyone knows, my two other favorite Dick novels of all time. Yep. Um, I think that both, I, I agree with what both Larry and John have said. Um, but I also really think that Dick does an incredible job of blurring the lines of reality in, in between the two different, you know, Bob Arctor and, and everybody else. There were certain moments where I couldn't really tell whose POV I was in. And I feel like that deliberate, Conf- that confusion was deliberate yes it was a device I, yep. yeah and I, I think it's done pretty masterfully in this book yeah i i love the end uh i know larry didn't it really drove the point home for me and i didn't say oh. i didn't like it i just wanted it integrated that's all <laughs> well i know what he means <laughs> i i and I, yeah i know what you mean too larry and, and for a second i thought i was reading a totally different story when I first started, when I got to that part, but then I, I realized that it, it's still Arctor named Bruce. Um, so yeah, uh, four and a half out of five. I loved it. I think I'll probably reread it at some point because um, I'm sure there's stuff that I missed. And yeah, so four out of five for me. Awesome. 4.5 out of five, excuse me. All right, we're almost done. We have only one last thing to do, and that's um, our, our dick-like suggestions for this month. Uh, Anthony, do you have a dick? I have none. Keep talking. (laughs) All right. Um, I will do my dick-like suggestions really quick. I have two, one of which we just recorded an episode about, which is Lee Brackett. Uh, Lee Brackett's The Big Jump, which we did as a dick-adjacent episode because it was Do-Si-Do with the Solar Lottery, uh, Philip K. Dick's debut. And uh, for those who don't know, Lee Brackett was a screenwriter and the queen of the space operas in the 40s and 50s. And she was an excellent writer. I, I re-read yes. her space operas recently, and she was they were just wonderful. Yes, and The Big Jump. Stand up. Have you ever read The Big Jump, um, John? Yes, I read, I read all of her books. Yeah, The Big Jump is great because it's like uh, psychological horror meets um, it has like real grand themes and stuff and it's great and um, the uh, uh, the other book I want to recommend this month and, uh, and that's Dangerous Visions and New Worlds that's this new nonfiction book um, about the new wave of science fiction there's uh, it's a great nonfiction book uh, there's some holes the Barry Maltzberg article is awfully short. Um, there's not enough about John Bruner. There's only a little bit about Spinrad. And there's a certain person who's on this call whose books should have been represented more in it. Um, so I'm, a little, I'm a little less in the new, aid, new wave thing, if you're yeah. talking about that. I'm, 
you know, this, I was kind of proto cyberpunk and, and, uh, but, uh, but it says it goes through 85 and um, I'm sorry, sir, but Transmaniacon and city come a walk in were definitely books that should have been covered. In this yes, book. I agree. Uh, I agree. <laughs> they should have been, they should have been Michael Moorcock was a big, important person in that scene. Yes. And so, uh, dangerous visions and new worlds by, uh, Andrew Netty and, um, uh, Ian McIntyre. John, do you have a Dick-like suggestion, uh, Philip K. Dick-related media book or anything? I think that pe that people who have not seen the movie uh, Scanner Darkly, or even if they did see it when it came out in 2006, to go back and rewatch that. Uh, I rewatched it yesterday, <laughs> and uh, my uh, appreciation for it uh, only expanded. I watch it about once a year. Yeah. It's that good. Yeah. And it's amazing how faithful it is, but we'll, we'll do a whole episode on that. All right, Larry, you're the last dick-like suggestion, and then we'll preview what's coming up next. Uh, let me see if I can find my suggestion here. Uh, my suggestion is, of course, a video game of called Super Liminal. Oh, it's yes. a, a dreamlike game that's based on, on spatial relations and... Uh, our perception of reality. It's there, there's a there's a couple of games like this, but I I like this one because of its humor, and uh, it sort of has similar themes to um, uh, whatever that the Stanley Parable and stuff like that, where it's humorous but but also has great gameplay. Uh, you you're basically a person who ends up in a dream state. Right. Can control uh, different objects, and they grow and shrink depending on their mm -hmm. their relation to you and and to the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I read a review of it, a really um, enthusiastic review in the Washington Post. And yeah, there, um, there's also a game called Maquette uh, from a different company, which is basically the same thing. Uh, it has a similar similar uh, gaming engine technique i wonder how many of these would exist if phil dick had never existed exactly like right. that's, that's exactly what what made me think of him when i was playing it was i mean i i, I don't know how dick would feel about video games we've talked about that before but uh if he was into them i think this would be kind of his one of his jams he would like this one all right uh anthony what have we got coming up next <clears throat> what is Valis? When a beam of pink light begins giving a schizophrenic man named Horse Lover Fett, who might also be known as Philip K. Dick, visions of an alternate Earth where the Roman Empire still reigns, he must decide whether he is crazy or whether a godlike entity is showing him the true nature of the world. We are doing Valis. Awesome. Valis, of course, is a big one. It's a huge one. So, uh, One of the biggest. Yeah. So this this. Uh, pretty good back-to-back -back doing Scatter Darkly and Balance. So. Yeah, this is, I mean, I just want to reiterate, this book was fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It. yeah and it's, I, would, it's, I would love to hear one of our fans say they didn't like it and, and the reason <laughs> why. And give the reason why. Well, yeah. and that's one of the sad things is that he was really in a zone at the end that he was starting to really come together as a writer. And if we had gotten another 20 years of Philip K. Dick writing... <laughs> Yeah, who knows what he would have created, you know? Yeah. 
But like, mm-hmm. like he even said about this, he, he had finally found an editor that that could improve his writing. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the, the third to the last novel he wrote, is that, is that what this is? Something yeah. like that? To yeah. find an editor that truly gets you and, and can, can make you better at, at, that, at that time is tragic. All right. So on that note, guys, um, good job, Scanner Darkly. Um, I, Thanks for uh, doing it with us, John. Uh, yeah. It's great to, to meet yeah. you and to thank talk, you. talk drugs with you. <laughs> thank you yes thank you john and uh for drug talk welcome to drug talk with larry and john <laughs> the special guest anthony yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> and the straight edge guy being confused so. <laughs> all right folks so as always keep it paranoid stay paranoid and we'll be, see, be paranoid we'll see you uh at the- we form the demons inside, imprint by imprint, and etching at a time. Day by angry, fearful day, decisions coated in grime. We are becoming 